Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, you are a sight for sore eyes. It's uh, good to see you again. We had what I think was one of the best vacations of our lives. Uh, started out uh, to be uh, less than auspicious. We uh, blew the engine on our Jeep, and so we had to had to replace uh, that piece of equipment before we left. But uh, we just had a wonderful time once we, uh, we got started. We spent a little over a week with our son Brian and his wife uh, Jill and our two grandchildren. Brian has accepted uh, another coaching job uh, at North Mason High School, just south of Bremerton. And uh, as it turns out, his athletic director there is a Christian. And one of his assistants is the uh, leader of the Young Life Club in the school. And uh, there are many of you men and women here in this congregation that could uh, testify to the impact that coaches have had on your lives. And I would just ask you to pray for Brian and his continuing uh, ministry there at that high school. Then we went on to uh, Whidbey Island, and we spent a little over a week there, took a lot of long walks and, and uh, read a lot of books, and went over to the San Juans and enjoyed ourselves thoroughly there. Then went to uh, Mount Rainier and spent a little over a week there, camped at uh, uh, White uh, River Campground, it's about 4,400 feet. You look up at about two miles of mountain, and, and it is a very impressive place to, uh, to be. And uh, then we returned uh, a week ago last Saturday and uh, could look back on that vacation with just a wonderful sense of having rested. So appreciate your prayer while we were gone. Now I'd like to have you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. And we want to return to uh, this uh, story of Elisha and pick up the threads of his life where we left him a month or so ago. As you know, Elisha was Elijah's disciple, his protege. Elijah, of course, is much better known. Uh, Elisha is only vaguely uh, familiar to uh, many of us, but he is described throughout the book of Second Kings as a man of God, one that, that God used uh, greatly in a very difficult time. He lived as Elijah did, in one of the foulest and most depraved periods of uh, Israel's life, a period of uh, great violence and brutality and uh, insane sexuality. As, as you read through the accounts of that particular period of history, it re reminds us very much of, uh, of our own period. Uh, if you've been reading in journals and, and in syndicated columns uh, lately, you've probably picked up the phrase post-Christian era number of writers refer to the period in which we live as a post-Christian uh, era. And I think most of us uh, look at it with a certain amount of uncertainty and bewilderment, and we wonder what our role should be in, in the face of our society, our culture. What tasks should we undertake? Where should we invest our lives? I mentioned before Paul's uh, statement to redeem the time because the days are evil. Apparently there's something very special about evil days. The more evil things become, the more opportunities there are for redemptive action. So the question is, where, where can we uh, sustain the greatest impact on our times? And uh, perhaps your question is even the prior question, how can I maintain my, 
my sanity and my sanctity, that is, that sense of separation from the world in the face of all uh, the pressures that we have to endure today. And as I've said before, Elisha's story uh, gives us uh, uh, some guidelines. He tells us how we should then live. Now, uh, one of the characteristics of Elisha's life, as I pointed out some months ago, is that it was a, a ministry of miracles, one miracle after another. Uh, the story begins with the call of Elisha, and immediately after, uh, afterward, there's a, a long series of miraculous happenings that, that Elisha is involved in. And I pointed out then that the purpose of those miracles was not merely to authenticate uh, Elisha's uh, office. It did have that, uh, have that function. But more importantly, miracles show us something of the person and work of God. It's true of Jesus' miracles as well as the miracles of the, uh, of the apostles and of the prophets. They demonstrate more than the fact that God has clout, that he has power and authority. They tell us what, what God is actually like and what he is doing in the world. God is always doing things. He's always working. Jesus said, my father works and I, and I work. He has never stopped working from the beginning of, of creation. But we don't see him at work because his, uh, he's invisible and his works are, are often invisible. He operates in the realm of unseen realities. So the miracles serve to bring God out into the open. They take off the wraps, so to speak, so that we have an opportunity to see what God is really like and what he is doing in the world today and what he has chosen to do through his workers, through his servants, the men and women that are being used by him to have a redemptive effect upon our society. Now, the other thing that I pointed out when we were talking about miracles is that his miracles are highly symbolic. That though they operate in the realm of the physical, they're designed to symbolize spiritual realities. That's true of Jesus' miracles as well. The uh, change of water into wine is not uh, merely to show that God is able to, uh, to change water into wine. The purpose of that miracle is to establish that God wants to give for our gladness. He wants to, to make us joyful. He wants to provide enjoyment for our life. That's the kind of God that he is. And as we have looked at the story of Elisha, we see over and over again these manifestations of the character of God and what God wants to do through us in order to touch our world in a significant way. For example, if you remember, the first miracle that Elisha performed was the, uh, had to do with the polluted stream, stream in Jericho. And, and Elisha took a little, a little bowl of salt and he, he poured the salt in the polluted stream and he healed it, to use the, uh, the actual word that's used in the Hebrew. He cured the polluted stream. Well, what's the point of that parable, if we can call it that, that allegory, though it happened in history? It teaches a lesson. Well, what is the lesson? Well, that God wants us to, to have the same kind of effect on our society. We are the salt of the earth, and the way Jesus put it, is we and we alone are the salt of the earth, that we do have the ability to arrest the spread of corruption and to purify society and to heal and to cure the afflictions that uh, people uh, are, are, are enduring around us. 
Now, the second miracle in the story of Elisha was the story of the bears. Remember the bears and the little children? The point of that story is that we don't need to take things in our own hands. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't have to, to pay anyone back for the evil that they, uh, that they, uh, uh, that they give us, um, the evil things that they do to us that we can put all those things in God's hands, that he understands that the world is corrupt and rotten and evil and terrible, rotten, evil things are happening to us, but we can put those things in his hands and let them deal with them. Vengeance is his, not ours, you see. And then we come to the story of uh, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat and that uh, war that they got themselves involved in that was uh, so foolish and yet God came through in grace and in forgiveness and at the time of the evening sacrifice there was a miraculous victory and the lesson there is that despite our our foolishness and our folly and our wrongdoing God is wonderfully gracious wonderfully forgiven forgiving and he can still despite the uh, uh, the failures in our lives, he can work through us to touch the lives of, of others. And then there was the story that we looked at just before I left, the story of the multiplying oil and this uh, young widow, the widow of the son of the, uh, the, the wife of the son of the prophet who had, who had died. And uh, uh, her, her poverty and the poverty which she endured and, and Elisha's uh, gift to her of the multiplying oil uh, how he told her to go into her house and shut the door, which is a picture of worship. And uh, the point to be made from that story is that worship is the foundation of life and ministry. We tend to get things turned around. We think that the end of life is righteousness or the purpose of, of the Christian life is conduct or ministry. But it's not. The end of everything is worship. Knowing God and loving him and devoting ourselves to him and uh, our ministry and uh, uh, the changes that are taking place in our lives, the, the, uh, the degree to which we're being conformed to the image of Christ, that's, uh, that's the product of worship. Worship comes first. I've often uh, quoted Mother Teresa's uh, uh, comment to a young minister who came to her and asked what he could do to have an impact on his world and she said to him Henry spend one hour a day in devotion to Jesus and you'll be all right and uh, that's what all of scripture says to us that our our goal our purpose in life is to know God and to love him and to delight ourselves in him and in his presence and when we come into his presence that's where we begin to change. That's where we begin to take on his likeness. That's where we, we begin to, to gather the power and authority that's necessary for us to carry out uh, our ministries. Now we've come to another miracle uh, in chapter 4. It's the what I call death in the pot. Let's begin reading with verse 38. 2 Kings 4, 38. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a, there was a famine in the land. Uh, actually, the text uh, suggests a particular famine, the famine, and it's referring to one which Elisha had foretold. I mentioned before that these stories are not chronological. They're not historical. They're topical. And it seems that some months before this particular incident, Elisha had 
predicted a famine, just as Elijah had. Elijah predicted a three-and-a-half-year famine to uh, Ahab. Elisha predicted a seven-year famine during the reign of, of Jehoram. Uh, we'll read about that much later in Second Kings 8. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, sitting at his feet, Elisha said to his servant, that is one of the young men who were seated there uh, receiving instruction, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them, literally shredded them, uh, into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat, and they came about as they were eating of the stew, that they cried out and said, O man of God. There's another instance where Elisha is described as God's man. O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat, but he said, Now bring meal, that is flour, the basic stuff from which bread is made, raw material of bread. <clears throat> he said, now bring meal. And he threw it into the pot. And he said, pour it out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. text actually says there was no evil word in the pot, which is interesting. The word word in Hebrew can also mean incident or happening or event for some for some odd reason, and that's the way it's used here. But it's the same word that's used in verse 44 and translated the word of the Lord according to the word of the Lord. And just store that fact in your, in your mind because we'll, uh, we'll come back to it uh, later. Elisha was making his rounds uh, through Gilgal, or through Israel, rather, and he, and he came to Gilgal. It was his pattern to itinerate from place to place and teach and advise and counsel and encourage and feed the believing remnant. There was a hard core of faith in Israel, but uh, uh, most of the people were not any longer listening to God. The, the writer of the story tells us that there was a famine, there was a drought in the land, and that appears to be a, uh, just a trivial fact, almost a throwaway line, but there, there are no trivial words in God's word. Everything has significance. God was interfering again with the weather patterns in Palestine in order to make a point because these physical droughts were very often symbolic of a deeper spiritual famine that was occurring at the time, a famine of the hearing of the word of God. And that's what was happening in Israel. People had turned off on God. They weren't listening to him any longer. Now, when, when we don't listen to God, he will keep trying to get our attention. There's no one that God will not talk to, believe me. But there's no one that God will talk to against their will. He will speak to us and speak to us. And then he will get far more aggressive, if I can use our modern idiom. He gets right in our face 
and he begins to confront us with the facts. When we were in, uh, uh, over in Washington with our grandchildren, I was sitting in uh, Brian and Jill's living room one day reading a Time magazine, and Sarah, our little three-year-old daughter, was playing with Lego on the floor. And uh, she is the great communicator. She, she, from the time she learned her first word, she started talking. And she talks incessantly, <laughs> constantly. I have a philosopher friend who wrote us recently and described his child, child uh, as, well, he, he said, you know, uh, Rene Descartes, the famous philosopher in his dictum, I think, therefore I am. He said, my, my daughter's philosophy is, I am, therefore I talk. And, and I thought when I read that, that's, uh, that's Sarah. She talks constantly. And unfortunately, sometimes I'm not a very good papa. I tune out. And that's what I was doing. I was uh, uh, muttering inarticulate uh, words, mm-hmm, huh, uh, huh. but I really wasn't uh, listening at all. And finally, she reached up and took the top of my Time magazine and got right in my face. And she said, Papa, are you listening to me? <laughs> and I had, I had to say, well, Sarah, to be honest, I haven't been listening to you, but, but I will. I will. Well, I, God does that to us. He gets right in our face and he says, are you listening to me? But if we don't want to listen to him, he'll go away and talk to somebody else who does. That's the tragedy. He's a gentleman. He's not rude. He will not foist himself on us. And if we don't want to listen, he goes away and he talks to those who have ears to hear. And see, uh, that's what was happening in Elisha's day. You may recall when we were studying Isaiah, a passage that states that very specifically. Isaiah was, well, God was trying to get uh, Ahaz's attention through Isaiah. The Assyrians were on the march and Ahaz was terrified and he was building siege works and he was doing everything but trusting God and God kept trying to get his attention and he didn't want to listen, didn't want to hear. And so God said to Isaiah, seal up the testimony. In other words, stop talking to Ahaz. Go talk to people who will. And so he said to his disciples, to the law, to the testimony. In other words, let's go back to the Bible. And uh, little groups of of disciples began to gather in Israel. And Isaiah went from place to place and he taught those communities of faith. He wouldn't talk. He wouldn't address himself to the rest of that uh, society. Now, uh, Isaiah refers to those little communities as the children God had given to him, interestingly enough. He says, these are the sons, the children that God has given to me. And as you may know, the writer of Hebrews picks up that phrase, that very phrase, and applies it to Jesus and his disciples, the disciples that gathered at his feet. Because our Lord had exactly the same problem. He ministered to the masses until he wouldn't listen any longer, and then he gathered the disciples. That's why as you look at his life, you'll discover that as he grew closer to the end of his life, he was spending more and more of his time with fewer and fewer people, with a hardcore faith in Israel, see. And that's what Isaiah did, and that's what Elisha did. He wasn't speaking any longer to his society. He went from place to place and gathered uh, the, the remnant, the believing remnant. 
And in this case, that believing remnant was represented by the sons of the prophets. The sons of the prophets were young seminary students. They correspond to uh, the young people today that are in our training institutions uh, for ministry, or our own center and other places around the United States and, he, and around the world. And he would, he would travel from place to place, and they would gather, and they would, Texas, sit at his feet, which is a common idiom for receiving instruction. Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, Acts tells us. And Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And we've just sung a song about sitting at the feet of, of Jesus. In essence, that's what we do anytime we sit down with the scriptures. We're sitting at the feet of Jesus. And we're listening to what he has to say. And after a while, uh, as he was teaching them, he noticed that they were hungry. Young men are always hungry. And uh, apparently they were getting a little bit restless. And so he said to one of their number... You feed them. Uh, go uh, uh, into the kitchen and whip up some stew for the, for the sons of the prophets. So this uh, young man went off into the kitchen and dutifully appointed uh, one of his friends to go gather herbs. They were poor. Of course, there were no grocery stores. They had to gather, they had to forage for food. So they went out, he went out into the field. He gathered herbs. Uh, interesting, an interesting fact is that the word for herbs, this particular word for herbs, there are several words for cucumbers and fruit, vegetables of various kinds. This one means light fruit. Light fruit. Now, that doesn't mean that it had less calories than other fruit. The rabbis interpreted it to mean this fruit enlightened the eyes. Interesting. Elisha's teaching, and they get hungry, and so he sends one out to gather light food. Well, the young man that went out to gather was uh, a novice, naive perhaps, or he just was innovative, and so he thought he'd throw a few other cucumbers in there that looked pretty good. So he gathered up some some other uh, vegetables and uh, brought it into the kitchen, and they shredded the whole thing in the pot. And what he did not know is that he had picked up some poisonous uh, cucumbers, which is probably what they were. They've been able to identify them. And uh, they, they, were, they were exceedingly dangerous. And these were shredded right into the pot. The whole thing was boiled and mixed up. And, of course, it was impossible to extract the poison from the stew. It was taken out to these young men, ladled out on their, uh, in their bowls, and they began to uh, they began to eat it till one one young man who seemed to have some insight that others didn't have said there's something wrong with this stew and he cried out to Elisha oh man of God there's poison in the pot so Elisha very calmly uh, calls for some flour some meal he takes a handful of meal he tosses it in the pot and there is no evil word in the pot. G.K. Chesterton said, all of life is a, a parable and can only be understood in allegory. And I agree with him. And I think that's particularly true of these, uh, of these miracles. There's a parable here. Now, it actually happened. I don't deny the historicity of it, but uh, there is a lesson to be learned. And the question is, what is the lesson? Well, let me remind you of another event that sounds very much like this one that took place during Jesus' uh, life. 
Uh, our Lord wanted to get away. He was tired, said to the disciples, let's, uh, let's go find a solitary place. Uh, people saw them going, ran ahead of them, gathered on that spot. Jesus saw them. Mark said he saw them as sheep not having a shepherd. And so he began to feed them, began to teach them. Taught them through that long day. Evening came. They were hungry. He said to the disciples, this is in Mark, you feed them. They said, we don't have the wherewithal. So the Lord said, all right, what have you got? Give it to me. I will feed them. And he did. Then, as you know, John records the discourse that follows. Our Lord took that physical miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and he turned it into a lesson. The point of which is this. Uh, the only thing that really feeds our souls, the only thing that satisfies is taking our Lord Jesus in, eating him. He described himself as the bread of life, eating and drinking of him is what, what gives us life. The flesh profits nothing, he said. The only thing that matters is imbibing Christ in his words. Picture, point. Teaching, picture, point. I look at this story and I see exactly the same sequence. Teaching, picture, point. Lesson. And I ask myself, what is the lesson? Well, it's a little different than the lesson that Jesus taught from the feeding of the 5,000. But nevertheless, it is a lesson. And what's the point of it? I think the field represents our field of inquiry. All of us have uh, spheres of uh, information that we're familiar with. Uh, it's a result of our education, our, our reading, our friends, our associations, the, the, the people, the literature, the media, these things we come in contact with and, and we, we begin to gather facts. We live in what is called an information society today. Information comes at us from all quarters. It's an information glut. Uh, Alvin Toffler talks about what he calls decisional speed up. The fact that, that we have so much information in the world, it's impossible for us to, to uh, process it all. It comes at us like articles on a conveyor belt. You know, it just backs up on us. We can't. We don't know what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's good and what's beautiful. And When I was in the military, which was a long time ago, uh, we used to peel potatoes by hand. Now they have machines. And when you were on KP, you know, you had to peel potatoes. And I, and I remember there was a story going around then about uh, a private that was told to cull potatoes, this huge pile of potatoes, and he had to cull them before he peeled them. He had to decide which were good potatoes and bad potatoes. And, a couple hours later, the sergeant came in, and there was one potato on the floor, and he was looking at another one, and the sergeant said, what's the matter? And he said, I don't, I don't know. He said, these decisions are killing me. And, <laughs> and that's the way we feel. You know, the, the information is coming at us with blinding speed. We don't know what to do with it. What's true? What will help my family? What's good for my kids? And and are certain forms of sexuality okay? And, 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 and we don't know how to process all of this. 
And the greater problem is that behind secular society, there is an evil, malicious personality who's out to confuse us. Now, in the one sense, uh, there is no such thing as a secular society that occurred to me in thinking through this, uh, this message. We talk about uh, secular literature and sec secular movies and secular schools and secular society, but really there's no such thing as secular society because behind what we see is the invisible presence of a master propagandist who lives in the realm of the spiritual and who operates with misinformation. He wants to confuse us. So he mixes truth and error together. See? That's the most insidious, uh, pernicious form of poison, just as the meal was, because it's so well mixed, it's difficult to distinguish truth from error. Satan always comes at us in the guise of good. See? That's the way truth is presented. It's always cloaked in beauty. Obvious evil sickens our soul. So Satan doesn't, he doesn't present us facts that way. He, he shrouds them in, in beauty and half-truths. They look so good. That's why greed and revenge and adultery always look so good when they're portrayed in the media. There's a certain beauty about these love affairs that take people away from their, from their wives and their children. And there's something sweet about revenge. You know, you, we watch the Terminator series and we say, boy, go get them. You know, we love that sort of thing. It looks good. It always turns out right. Because, see, you can always contrive artificial, fictionalized evil. You can contrive the results. And what we don't see are the terrible disasters that are the result of, of believing the lie, these terrible finalities, you know, the divorces and the bitter custody fights and, and uh, the emptiness of revenge, that terrible hollow feeling that always comes from taking things in your own hands. You see, the way Satan comes at us is to never just present us with bald error, but with truth cloaked in, or uh, error and lies cloaked in, in beauty. Look at the soaps. Listen to the messages that come through the soaps. And then, oh, it looks so good. But it is so evil and so corrupt. And it is so hard for us to ferret out the error and to put our finger on it and say, this is what's wrong with that, you see. Now, in thinking through this, um, Karen and I were taking a long walk one morning and we were trying to think through how these half-lies come to it. Oh, by the way, I thought of a quote from Yogi Berra that was, that's, that's uh, pertinent. Barra says, half the lies they tell you aren't true. And uh, uh, that is especially applicable to Satan. Half the lies he tells you aren't true. Because they're cloaked in beauty and grace. But it occurred to us in walking that, as we walked, that one of the most insidious half-truths that Satan feeds us is to only take us so far. He gives us what I, what I think of as penultimate answers to ultimate questions. And those next to last answers are ruinous by penultimate. Penultimate means next to the last. There are ultimate answers that God gives us. There are other answers out here that are in front. And unless we see the whole truth, say, and nothing but the truth, the half-truth becomes a terrible, terrible lie. 
Now, let me illustrate. I thought of four or five different ways in which uh, this uh, proves to be true. Satan will use any knowledge to lead us away from God, even biblical knowledge. Are you aware of that? See, one of, one of the important truths in Scripture is that we need to feed upon the Word. And Satan will, will let you do that. He'll let you uh, devote yourself to personal Bible study. He'll, he'll let you get involved in Bible study fellowship. He'll let you come to one of our growth groups or uh, a men's study or a women's study or a small group that you're involved in. That doesn't bother him at all. He doesn't mind as you, if you study the Bible as long as you don't let it penetrate your heart and you don't read the Bible in order to delight yourself in the Lord. The purpose of Bible study is not to know. The purpose of Bible study is not even to believe. Did, are you aware of that? There are a lot of people that, that read the Bible and they believe. Demons do that. James says that the, the most scurrilous devils, they, they believe everything you believe. They could look at our doctrinal statement and say that's true, to the extent that it is true. You see, when, when the Bible talks about faith, it doesn't mean that we have the capacity to rattle off a creed. There's something more that's involved. See, the problem with so many of us is we read the Bible and we believe it and we have a certain set of doctrines that we hold to and that truth never does really percolate into our hearts and we never really see the Lord behind the message and our faces get hard, our faces are lined with the same kind of convictions that we have in our, in our minds, and, and we come across as opinionated and difficult and argumentative, and we're always right and everybody else is wrong, and Satan just delights in that. He loves it. Now, you see, the purpose of Bible study is not, is not knowing just knowing, although that's important, and not just believing, even though that's important. It is beholding. It is seeing the face of the Lord. It's looking beyond the page and giving yourself in devotion and in delight to the Lord, delighting yourself in Him. Now, there's a second way in which uh, I think Satan foists the lie on us. One is that, as the second is that he will, by the way, I lost my glasses, so I'm stuck with these. You'll have to put up with them. Uh, the, the, the second way in which he inflicts these half lies upon us is that uh, he will actually let you feel the infinite weight of your sin. He'll let you feel very guilty over your sin. He'll permit you to come to the awareness that, that your sin is, is horrifying, it's ugly, it's evil. And, it, and, it, and he'll even let you confess that sin and, and humble yourselves and, and become very contrite as long as you don't accept God's forgiveness and as long as you don't see his grace and understand that, that he's so wonderfully forgiving that he forgives all of our sins, that when we confess our sins, when we humble ourselves, and in an act of 
of contrition. We recognize the enormity of our sin. And we turn to him. We are forgiven. He calls us clean, see. And we cannot call unclean what what God has has called clean. I heard the greatest uh, country western song as we were driving across the country. Jesus and Mama still love me. And uh, I thought, that, that's true. And, you know, I don't know about Mama, but regardless of what I do, uh, Jesus still loves me. Cannot, as I've said over and over again, not sin the grace of God. Another way in which uh, Satan lies to us is that he will permit us to try to be good. That's all right with him, as long as we try very hard to be good. See, I know my own heart. I'm always trying to fix myself. I'm always trying to uh, clean up my own act, make myself more uh, presentable uh, to God, have a little more spit and polish so God will see me in a more favorable light. And Satan knows that if I keep trying harder to be what God wants me to be, I will fail miserably and I will eventually uh, give up. Because it doesn't work. Only God can make us good. Righteousness is a gift from God. We must yearn for it. We must seek it. But ultimately it can only come from God. Any change that takes place in our life is the result of his activity upon us. And without that activity we will not change. At least not for very long. And the change will not be very very profound. No, we have to ask for it. See, Satan will let us work very hard to clean up our lives as long as we don't really understand that goodness comes from God. Only God is good. Only God can impart good. And we start asking for it. One of my projects while I was on vacation was uh, to begin studying for next fall series of studies. And uh, I'll give you a little preview. What we're going to do is study the life of David. And then we're going to look at the Psalms that David wrote out of those historical events. When we were in uh, Baker City a month or so ago, we went to the uh, Oregon Trail Interpretive Center, and there was a woman there who's, I believe it was her great-grandmother, who actually came across the uh, Oregon Trail, and she did a dramatic reading describing what it was like for a woman during those days, the loss of her child, and a very poignant, powerful presentation. After she got through, she said, I want you to understand that I was quoting verbatim from diaries that were kept by women who traversed the, the Oregon Trail. And I nudged Carolyn, and I thought, that is exactly what the Psalms are. Uh, the, uh, Samuel and Kings give us the history. The Psalms tell us what was going on in David's mind, in his heart, his emotions, his feelings, terrible uh, Uh, struggles that were going on internally. And I thought, what a wonderful way to study the life of David, to study the event and then how David felt about that event. In the course of it, I was studying Psalm 141, which is probably not one of the Psalms that we'll look at. But the rabbis tied that into the experience in the cave. When Saul went into the cave to, how can I put this, answer the call of nature, and uh, David came along with his knife and he snipped off the hem of Saul's uh, Saul's a garment, you know, he was, David loved to play with fire. David was a swashbuckling sort of a fellow, and he crept up in the darkness and cut off the end of Saul's uh, 
uh, toga and he, and he scuttles back into the darkness and he's chortling back there and chuckling to himself. And all Samuel says is his conscience smoting. His heart smoting. Because he had ridiculed the Lord's anointed. And out of that came Psalm 141. And what he says in that psalm is that he doesn't want to be like Saul and his henchmen. He doesn't want to fight fire with fire. He doesn't want to be like that. He wants to be a gentle, gracious, loving man. He wants to put things in God's hands. So that, an interesting idiom, he says, when they fall off the cliff, they will say, when they take their big fall, they will say, David's words were sweet. And what struck me as I read that psalm is that the whole thing is a prayer. David wasn't saying, I'm going to be sweet from now on. I'm going to be kind. He's saying, God, I know what I'm inclined to do. You make me the kind of man that, that you want me to be. See, now, Satan doesn't want us to know that truth. That, that, that's the kind of uh, truth that uh, he, he doesn't want to hear. But that's the whole truth. Um, he will let us get involved in good causes, good social causes, good political causes, spiritual causes, religious causes. He'll let us teach Sunday school. He'll let me be in the ministry. You know, I, I, I struggle with this constant feeling that somehow my teaching, my counseling, my, my discipling endears me to the heart of God. It does not. God can't love me anymore. Then he loves me. If I never preached another sermon, if I never counseled another person, he would still love me. You see, Satan will let us get wrapped up in these causes and, and get very paranoid and, and, and uh, uh, just so totally involved that we lose sight of, of God himself. They become, again, the penultimate uh, answer in, in our life. And then finally, I just have a minute or two here, but I... One that just struck me recently because of all the uh, physical affliction in our family, and our, not our personal family, but our church family, is that Satan will terrify us with his ability to ravage our minds and our emotions and our bodies and our memories. And we can get the impression that, uh, that, that we, we don't have a chance. See, the truth is, Satan is a very powerful foe, as the song, Luther's great hymn, indicates. Uh, on earth is not his equal. He's a terrible enemy. He can ravage our minds, and, and he can ravage our bodies. But he cannot touch our heart of hearts. And he cannot separate us from the love of God. I just a couple of weeks ago read the story of Black Bart. Some of you know who he was. He was a criminal that ranged over the uh, Sierra Madres back in the late 1800s, 1870s, robbing stages, uh, frightening people to death. He was the terror of the uh, Wells Fargo uh, stage uh, drivers and uh, 29 stages. He, uh, he robbed. When they finally caught him, they found out that he was a mild-mannered druggist from Decatur, Illinois, by the name of Charles Coles, who was so afraid of horses that he, he rode a buggy back and forth from his robberies. 
and who never fired his gun because he never loaded it. It's true. And yet he he terrorized the Southwest for, I don't know, eight, ten years. And I thought of Satan. You know, he, he can inflict terrible harm on us. But he cannot touch our heart of hearts. And he can never separate us from the love of God. He can, he can inflict us with cancer. He can destroy our families. He can wreck our health. He can wreck our minds. Bring psychosis, madness. But he cannot touch our heart of hearts. Some of you know Charles Lamb, you know of Charles Lamb, the English essayist uh, back in the 1700s. And you may not know that his, his sister, Mary Lamb, went insane and killed their mother, their invalid mother. Even though both Mary and Charles were belie- and their mother were believers. And in those days, they just locked people up in insane asylums. And uh, I read the story of Charles Lamb leading his sister off to the asylum, holding her hand. And both of them together talking about heaven, which Charles Lamb said is God's cure for all of earth's ills. And I thought of this this truth. There's no end to what Satan can do to us here except the limits that God places upon him. He can only go as far as God wants him to go. And he cannot touch our relationship to God. And he cannot touch our eternal destiny. You see what I'm saying? Satan feeds us little bits of the truth, but not the whole message. To confuse us, to darken our minds. Uh, as C.S. Lewis said, the air gets thick here in Narnia. It's difficult to make those, those judgments. Well, how do we distinguish between truth and error? Well, you take a little handful of Flower, and I hope this isn't too much of a stretch. The flower represents the raw material, the basic stuff of the bread, which I believe represents the Word of God. That's how we find out what's true and what's wrong. It's, it's just simply going to the Word and listening to the words of, of Jesus and hearing what He has to say. That's what enables us to distinguish truth from error. That's the only sure word that we have. Have to be men and women of the book, you see. That's how we become men and women of God. Let me leave you with one verse, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Turn to Ephesians 4. And with us, I'm done. Verse 13 is talking about our tendency to uh, instability. Excuse me, verse 14. <clears throat> so that, he says. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And behind it all is our inveterate Sabbathless Satan, as Charles Lamb called him in, in that article I read. He never gives up. He never lets up. Mis- keeps churning out this misinformation day after day. comes at us through all the... The literature, the media, everything that we're exposed through, and it destabilizes us. But in verse 5, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. 
Literally, Paul says, truthing in love. So it's not just a matter of talking the truth. It's a matter of living the truth as well as speaking the truth. We communicate through our lives as well as through our lips. And that's, that's one of the things we can do in our world today. We can get straight ourselves what is true. See, this is the handful of meal that is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We can get straight ourselves, and then we can begin to impart it to others. So they can understand the difference between truth and error. Well, may God add his blessing to this uh, portion of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come as little children with uh, uh, just a desire to know. We, we want to know why. We want to know how. We, our minds are full of questions. And we thank you that you have the ultimate questions to all of, uh, all, the ultimate answers to all of our questions. So in faith, we turn to you and ask you to, uh, to teach us. We want to sit at your feet because that's where we find ourselves made complete. We ask in Jesus' name.